Akira Koto Kato, everyone, and welcome to the weekly Hoon with um, me, Bernard Hickey, uh, in my bedroom in Wellington, looking like I've just woken up because I've just woken. You've up. Just woken up, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, Two, old men need their old old men need their nana naps. And nana naps, exactly. Yeah. And with Peter Bale, uh, with some wonderful blue sky in the background. Yeah, well, I've gone Tell overseas. I've gone overseas, Bernard. Over overseas. Yeah, I'm overseas. Yeah, yeah. It's the first time I've been able to go overseas for about eighteen months, and oh, I'm in uh, in in the beautiful uh, offshore island of the Hauraki Gulf in Waiheke, and oh. it is. Pretty bloody stunning, I can tell I you. I am so, so jealous. I've um, got a because lovely, of... little, lovely little cottage to stay in, and uh, I brought some Man of War wine, and I'm all ready to go. Oh, Man of War, that's fantastic. Mm, mm. Uh, do tell me, um, sounds like this orange is working really well for I you. I think orange is the new black, actually. But, <laughs> it, of course, we're actually still in red. You know, we're Auckland, is, Auckland is in red. And what, what was... Uh, just... Well, let's start with COVID, maybe, shall we? Because oh, sure. I was quite struck this morning how busy Auckland was. Uh, it's very busy coming over to Waiheke. People are obviously absolutely desperate to get out. Um, restaurants, you know, it was extraordinary walking through, even just through the ferry building this morning, seeing people in restaurants for the first time in wow. three months, three months or so, uh, on 107 days. And it was pretty weird. It was so very surprisingly large numbers of people on the Waiheke ferry not wearing masks which of course really? they're supposed to, supposed to at the moment. So it, it's interesting. People are still, I find people are still doing a little bit of uh, hands off, which I think is ideal. I think it's the right thing to do. Um, and uh, but it is restaurants to be able to go out and certainly in this, my case now to go overseas for the weekend. So I'm, I'm a very lucky boy. Now, Bernard, something happened this week that I thought we might, I was actually very irritated today to wake up and read Chris, Christopher Luxon, uh, saying, oh, Auckland should be in green already because the bloody business needs it. And it just seems to me that that is not a, a terribly profitable approach for the National Party. It didn't really work for um, Judith. And I'm not convinced that sort of constantly criticising the levels rather than saying we understand is the way to go. What do you think? Yeah, particularly if you're you know, saying you're all about being ambitious for New Zealand and being positive. Um, this was described elsewhere as a brain fart, and that sounds about right to me. Um, it's clearly uh, not appropriate for anyone to be going straight into green, essentially no well, it seems, restrictions. It seems not, yeah, yeah. No restrictions. Remember, we still have an outbreak. It is less than 100 Absolutely. people today, and um, we've got more than 20 to 30% of people unvaccinated completely in some of these outlying uh, DHB areas like Northland and Gisborne. And politically, um, there's still a big chunk of New Zealand who says we should still be in level Absolutely. four. Absolutely. So I, I just, I'm just not convinced that there is a political uh, edge on that. And before we talk about Luxon, again, just saying on COVID a bit, it was very interesting to me to hear Andrew Little this morning on the wireless talking about, um, you know, up, updating hospitals and improving their capacity. Uh, as though this was a new, and I was, you know, I find him a very sort of refreshingly honest person and that he will admit that running the health system is really bloody difficult and that he doesn't know why it can't change more rapidly. But it seemed very odd for him not to be challenged quite a lot on why, why some of these improvements to hospital facilities and ICU weren't done quite some time ago. Yeah. And from a, um, a Christopher Luxon point of view, um, making the wrong call on saying we should be in green distracts from the actual need to be challenging where it's legitimate yep. to challenge. Absolutely. And Absolutely. this area of the ICUs, uh, remember, we knew this moment was coming last year, and that was the time to increase um, ICUs uh, and, and also to try to employ staff. I suspect one of the major problems in actually increasing the number of rooms is the staff issue absolutely absolutely it is yeah yeah don't know that's that's very and the nurses association says that's very very clear but also we're losing of course because we haven't done a decent enough wage settlement with them all and we haven't uh rewarded them for the for, for everything they've done over the past 18 months they're all buggering off to australia would appear as well yes because if you're yeah, an increasing the iq of both countries of course <laughs> as, we, as someone once famously once said yeah um no i've got a uh, a sister-in-law who's an icu uh, nurse in australia who who tells me there is um enormous stress and demand for those sorts of people in australia mm. asking mm. me if i knew anyone 
Yeah, yeah, it's very interesting and bounty. So I, I still think, Bernard, there's a there's a there's another period here. Maybe it's another podcast for you on your spin-off podcast or your column. Is they still haven't got immigration right, and you know, with the, with the ending of MIQ, they're going to have to sort out the um, you know the migration system, the 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 um, what do you call it, the short term, you know, the short term valuable worker system, and really get that right and humming pretty pretty damn quickly. I would have thought in the, yeah, you know, within the first quarter of next year. That's right. And they had a pretty weak start this uh, this week when uh, the government opened up applications for those people who are stuck here to apply for permanent residency. You might re recall a couple of months ago, the government came out and said, right, if you're stuck here, then you can apply for permanent residency. You got one of these special COVID-era yep, yep. uh, residencies. And the start date was this week, the first tranche of people can apply. And of course, they all went on the website at nine o'clock on that yep. first day. Boof! completely wrecked, no, the system didn't work, it wasn't working. We discover, of course, that Immigration New Zealand, uh, through lockdown, hasn't been able to process many of its stuff because its system uh, yeah. was not yeah. in the cloud, not able to cope with people working from home, and they've actually just uh, extended the um, freeze on applications in part because they haven't been able to get their offshore processing going again. And so um, the government in, in various places looks um, slow and uh, ill-prepared. Um, mind you, this is from someone who, who's just, just woken, woken up, up in just the middle of the day. <laughs> <laughs> so, so um, but, to, but to be fair, I did. Yeah, they're uh, bloody slow. And, they're <laughs> bloody slow and also, they're, you know, they're, they're living the life of Riley out in, in their batches. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. So um, you know, the, the opposition should be on fire here, pointing out. Actually, these... we, could this, we could call this, we could call this two two old white hypocrites, Bernard, instead of two old white men. <laughs> talking bollocks. Two old Sorry, white I interrupted you. Talking bollocks. Um, no, yeah. you, you're, you're right that um, uh, there's certainly some weakness there on the government's part that the opposition should be jumping in Absolutely. from a height. But uh, to Christopher Luxon, uh, we might we may well, might as well go there into the yeah into the list. There. Christopher Luxon, Baldy um, Luxon, Baldy Luxon. So he was appointed. Um, I wouldn't call it elected. Appointed. No, the, anointed. The I, I would say he was anointed. anointed. Yeah, ah, is, I would say I would say word. he was anointed. Yeah, yeah. and and uh, and and she was uh, defenestrated. Yes, Judith mm. Collins um, really did self destruct uh, this week. So. Uh, we... and, and did you see too, Bernard? That um, sorry, just when, last week we were joking that she was getting some help from Cameron Slater, and of course it turns out she was. You know, her first yeah. her yeah. first statement on this was on his ridiculous BFD blog. You know, she hangs out with the with the bad kids, the naughty kids. Yes, and, the mean uh, girls. The mean girls. That is mm. the problem for Judith Collins, mm. and it has been from the start. Um, You've got to remember that most of the press gallery in New Zealand, and a lot of those people in our senior positions inside the, the mainstream media, as you say, were all attacked in the early 2010s by Cameron Slater from a height mm. and from all sorts of directions and all sorts of nasty ways. Um, many of them initially had dealings with Cameron Slater because uh, he was laundering um, all sorts of juicy bits and pieces coming yeah, out. Yeah, and he was wasn't floor. he getting some of juicy juicy bits from uh... exactly yes, as as proved by the by Mandy Hager. Uh, yes, by the mm. uh, dis disclosed emails showing exactly Hager, what sorry. was said, yeah. what was said to who. Mm. So from a, from. A, from a lot of people who are watching politics and making judgments daily and telling everyone about who they think is a sensible person to be in charge of the party, right from day one, everyone looked at each other and went, what on earth are they thinking? Mm. This isn't going to fly. Um, and we all learned in that first week of the uh, election, the first last week of the election campaign, how much of a problem it was. So it's just a matter of time. And for Luxon, um, and for a lot of people in the National Party, it was always just a matter of time that he would get that job. Yeah. And but he's very inexperienced. You know, he's kind of, he's even less experienced than Todd Muller. Well, that is part mm. of the problem. When you actually look at his parliamentary record, he's had two speeches in the general debate in Parliament. And in comparison with John Key, who everyone, you know, sees mm. Luxon as a sort of managerial sort of, technocrat. Yeah. Yeah. As a, mm. you know, John Key version 2.0. He actually gets that job with the least time in Parliament, the least experience, 
Key had four years, whereas Luxon has had effectively less than eighteen years. months. Yeah, yeah, well, yes, sorry, sorry, yes, yes, yeah, yeah. And um, he he also uh, has is going into that job with much less time on an opposition front bench. Uh, um, he's never actually been on a front bench, whereas no. at least John Key was the finance spokesman for quite some time. Yeah, no, and, I, I I agree, Bernard. I don't, I don't know I don't know his background ter- terribly terribly well. Uh, but I, I, we should also note that um, one of us got got the got the. Um, I think did you did you pick Luxon last week in our, in yeah, our I contest? Think, I, think, I think and I, think I picked I Nicola Willett. So if we if we as his, as his deputy, so can we just put those two things together and say that we are incredibly ah, sageish? You know, exactly. we we are the we are the Barry Soper and Richard Hayman, Richard Harmon of the younger era. Yes, yes. In fact, we should go to the younger TAB. generation, rather. Yeah, we should go to the TAB and um, and put a, a a bet on for a quinella. Is that's that right. Called? That's right. That's right. That's right. But Bernard, so tell, tell tell me a little bit about Luxon because I don't really buy this whole uh, managerial idea that you know because he's run in New Zealand and 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 sold soap at Unilever that he is necessarily uh, a brilliant uh, going to be a brilliant political leader. He he seems to me to be somewhat uninspiring his uh, all his comments so far have been very kind of of a very sort of libertarian nature in a sense to try presumably to try and sort of out outflank David Seymour but I would have thought that David Seymour is going to be made made to look even more credible by um, by Luxon not less yeah uh, the, the problem for Luxon is that um, he doesn't have those retail political skills that key had. Uh, he also uh, comes from a quite different background to Key and doesn't have that origin story mm. that you often need if you're going to reach into the centre of politics. It's no accident that um, a lot of uh, leadership um, aspirants write books about <laughs> their yep. backgrounds and uh, how they... even plagiarising large parts of them as well. Yes, mm. that's right. Uh, about how um, they've had to overcome some sort of major drama or um, shortcoming in their maybe their personal lives or in the lives of their families. For John Key, uh, the background was uh, growing up in a state house with a single mum who was a self-made man who, you know, became a a millionaire and led large groups of people on the international stage from virtually nothing, which to an extent with Key is is right. Um, He did come from a state house background. He wasn't uh, born to the manor. Um, Whereas uh, Christopher Luxon came from a very middle-class family. His father was a sales executive. executive. Um, His mother was also a professional. He grew up in a very um, relaxed uh, setting, Uh, went to a very... uh, um, high decile school, mm. um, went through university. What a surprise. Yeah, went straight into Unilever, basically one company man for uh, more than a decade and uh, went into leadership positions in a company which already had a dominant market position, which um, you know, in, in various parts isn't uh, having to scrabble hard, certainly not an entrepreneurial career. He no, no, it doesn't created. seem to be. I mean, you know, managerial is a good. There's a wonderful book by uh, a former. This is a very old book, but it's a. He, he was the guy who was the head of the for, for, former head of the Communist Party in the United States called the Managerial Revolution, and it was a kind of land. I think it came out in the early '50s, and it was a landmark publication of a sort of philosophical view that we were no longer being run by politicians, but we were running, being run by corporations and so on. And I'm just not convinced about that. I mean, it may be reassuring to people who like John Key. Uh, and I understand why many, many New Zealanders liked John Key because he came across as sort of extremely moderate and relatively sensible. But I'm just not sure that's going to wash, certainly not against um, Jacinda Ardern. Yeah, and the times are different. You've got to remember when Key came into the national leadership in 2006, this was before the global financial crisis. This was before um, house prices doubled again. This was before um, the big short for those of our our, um, attendees who uh, are into uh, (laughs) fantastic books and movies about um, how the world works these days. Mm. The Big Short uh, showed us, you know, what happens when um, the bankers are in charge. It's a great Uh, book by Michael Lewis, another another Michael Lewis book. Yeah, Yeah, it's actually, have you seen the movie? Yes, I have. Oh, the movie is um, actually almost better in a way. Um, Mm. The best thing that Steve Carell ever did. But... um, 
uh, I think the times are different and we're not quite so receptive to that, you know, um, self-made um, man successful in business uh, thing. Uh, but I think, but I guess you say, Luxon is not so much self-made as inheriting quite a lot of white privilege. Well, is that. Plus also, um, he's, he went into companies that were already established and already mm. had dominant market positions. And he made this case in his opening speech on uh, Tuesday, uh, in which he said that he had a track record of turning around failing organisations. Yeah, I thought Unilever. Oh, really? In New Zealand? Well, I don't and, know. I mean, I don't know that period. I mean, that, that was the period that I, 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 I mean, I'm not <laughs> sure whether it's whether it was um, Fife or whether, you know, who, who was the better leader of Air New Zealand, Fife or, or Luxon? Well, when you look at the history of Air New Zealand, obviously it did fail in 2000, 2001, mm -hmm. and you saw Ralph Norris, the former uh, head of ASB, um, and also the, the head of um, Commonwealth Bank of Australia. Mm -hmm. So someone who really had a track record of changing the culture and the direction of incredibly large organisations and creating massive amounts of shareholder value. And he did exactly that for Air New Zealand. Yeah. Um, got it out of um, real shtick. So if anyone can be said to have turned around Air New Zealand, it's not Christopher was that the Was that the period when they bought Anset? I mean, was, that, was that the recovery from the from the buying of Anset? Yeah, and so yeah. On? completely yeah. collapsed, bailed out by the then Labor government and, and had to do a massive turnaround in all mm. sorts of ways. So but that I always, was... Funny enough, I always associate that. I mean, I'm sure that, I'm sure Norris did the financials, but I always associate that innovation and reflection on customer service and things like the sky couch and the funny um you know the the funny uh um uh emergency warnings you know the uh, safety the, safety the, the briefings and so on yeah. i always associate that with fife and my my impression was with foreign coming thing entirely about in new zealand but my, my impression was that that fife was the one who had personality and flair and also had created a very tight uh, leadership team at Air New Zealand with Cam Wallace and various others. Is that right? That's right. Um, when you have a look at uh, the um, change in the marketing culture at Air New Zealand, mm. the change in its brand, uh, all of those things that we think of now as Air New Zealand staples, the um, the the seatback video mm. um, of uh, of uh, um, the safety video. All of those things happened before Luxon. Yeah. He saw his role and it, the, the job he was given by John Key, um, at, who went on to become his, his chairman at Air New Zealand, was to essentially improve the shareholder returns of Yeah, incremental improvement, not... Yeah, not, yeah. yeah and, so this is not a turnaround. No, and you know? he also inherited an airline at the most profitable time in the world for all airlines, where fuel costs were low, there was obviously no COVID, and you had very strong economic growth. Mm. So Air New Zealand delivered great profits, that's true. But one of the reasons it delivered great profits is because he made a series of cutbacks along supposedly uneconomic routes mm. in New Zealand, domestic routes to the likes of Invercargill and to, to the deep north. And he personally um, is responsible for that and is actually not particularly popular in the regions. No, because no exactly, exactly. So it's what Paul Kennedy just said. What, what, Bernard, what, what should we expect from Luxon? I mean, did you, did you pick up any, I mean, he hasn't, he doesn't seem to have screwed up massively in the last couple of days, but what, what, um, what should we expect from him? I mean, did, did, were there any clues, any thoughts that you had when you saw him that you thought, hmm, he's doing something interesting here? Yeah, he obviously wants to uh, reach back into the centre for National and to try to uh, scrub away this um, uh, diversion that we saw with Judah Collins mm. and with Simon Bridges to an extent, who were you know getting all Trumpy on it, trying to mm. um, really go for the jugular of not the centre, but the extreme right, if you like. And that um, is something he will try to avoid, which meant I was surprised to see the call for going straight to green today. That seemed quite um, hardcore. It seemed, it seemed unthinking too, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was, a, it was a, as described by others, a bit of a brain fart. And I think he, he may regret it now. Uh, but what he will do is try to reach across to the centre on various things. And there are a couple of examples of that. For example, uh, he has, uh, it looks like he'll, he will drop this Judith Collins um, decision to uh, try to overturn the uh, um, 
Resource uh, Management Act. Before. No, the the sexual identity, you know, the the trans. Oh bill, yeah, you know yeah. this this uh, this bill which outlaws um, conversion therapy, mm-hmm. um, uh, which and also a couple of other sort of quite. Socially, social socially liberal yeah 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 so I, he, I felt i was a bit, i think i said last week maybe on the con thing that i that i found it un, personally uncomfortable his uh pentecostal christian leanings uh, and of course um susie on uh, radio new zealand got into an awful lot of trouble for asking about whether he whether he believed in speaking in tongues and so on i think i was probably unfair and i mean I, I am personally uncomfortable about people bringing that kind of baggage into their into their political career and particularly when they when they've got a history of you know voting on abortion and so on and then it occurred to me that i was being a bit unreasonable because it is one of those things that you know is is a is a core anti-semitic trope which is that um uh certain people have divided loyalties and so I, I need to re- reframe that thing. I, think I am, I know, I may be personally uncomfortable, but you know, let's suck it and see and what, see what kind of person he actually turns out to be in yeah, power it, it or re- in, in in politics at least. Let's, yeah, let's no, see whether it, he gets there. You're you're right. It's, it really is case by case. Let's see whether this person is you know loyal to the country or loyal mm. to the faith. And uh, Bill English uh, did a really good job of being authentic about about um, being socially conservative on mm. various issues, including uh, abortion and um, uh, the, the Right to Die Act, um, where he was he very, very carefully compartmentalised his leadership of the National yep. Party and his personal faith. Whereas um, we've seen with Luxon so far in various votes that um, he hasn't quite been able to do that. And also the context is different. When Key and English were there with the National Party, there wasn't this quite hardcore of Pentecostal Christian mm. MPs. So it's not just a, a matter of um, one person. There was a bit of a, a group. Um, that's right. There's almost a sort of prayer group. There's almost a sort of prayer group going in there. Yeah, very That's interesting. right. And internally within the National Party, this group is called, and I, I must say this is not my description, this is the description of other national MPs behind the scenes to each other, uh, which has described the group as the Taliban within the National Party <laughs> caucus. I thought you were just going to say God botherers, but yes. No, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, which um, uh, plays into the extremism that some of them have. And yeah, it's pretty so hard maybe court. we need to revisit this again. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, the, the other thing that he does really believe in is investing in housing. Because you, you wrote a terrific oh piece, I thought, this week, pointing out that his, was it seven or eight houses? There's seven houses, yeah, including yeah. four rental properties in Auckland. Which, yeah. as you said, was a perfectly legitimate and sensible in, an investment strategy. Yeah. No, no, he's doing the, what every other um, investment uh, um, professional and and also the wisdom of the crowds who are the mm. public of New Zealand do, which is look at the incentives in front of you uh, around tax, around leverage, <laughs> around tr- the track record of house prices and go, actually... Even if I was the most talented entrepreneur in the in the entire country with the best business management skills and best um, skills at managing assets, even then, I would actually invest in rental property. Yeah, exactly. That's, exactly. That's the thing. And he's not the first in New Zealand uh, CEO to actually do this. Uh, Rob Fife um, uh, has has said publicly that he has made more money uh, investing in property than he ever made as the New Zealand CEO. Mm. And that's mm. the story this week, actually, that Stuff did the investigation into the value of his properties and found that in the 11 months of 2021, they have risen by four Ooh, points. Luxon's, Luxon's properties or Fife's? Uh, Luxon's, Luxon's properties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the first 11 months of 2021, they rose by $4.3 million to $21.1 million. Yeah. And that is actually more, that $4.3 million, than he made in his best year as Air New Zealand mm-hmm. CEO, $4.2 million. And that is actually uh, a year when he was the highest paid CEO in New Zealand. So from seven properties, he has made more money than the business leader judged to be the most successful mm-hmm. in the country in a year. And that is um, extraordinary. And for him to sort of downplay it and say, oh, why do you care about the, how much money I've made for my properties? I don't even know. That's how much I care about it. I don't, yeah. I don't know the number. 
Well, it actually really does matter. And it matters more than uh, for John Key when he was coming on as the leader of the National Party. Because back then, um, the gap in, in inequality, in the inequality, inequality was less, gap, yep. it wasn't nearly as large. Yeah, and he and he'd had a very successful investments career, you know, career yeah. in banking. Yeah, it's but, right. But, so, but just just going back for a minute, what do we what do we think? I mean, is is there going to be somewhere some area that he can use to outflank the government and actually make make a policy area his, or is it just going to be bumbling along criticizing the government? I think he's going to go hard on um, infrastructure investment. One of the interesting things that National proposed before the uh, election uh, last year was a, a National Infrastructure Bank, mm -hmm. which is a um, state-controlled infrastructure vehicle which invests with councils in lots of you know, motorways and infrastructure for housing and that sort of thing, brings in private money, matches it up with public money, and uses it to go on investment sprees for motorways and railways and all that sort of thing. That was one of the more interesting policies for National and uh, plays in a, a sort of belt and road for Wellington. Exactly. Mm. Wellington and Auckland. Yeah. And the, and that's quite a sort of pragmatic uh, approach to say, hey, you know, we're not so doctrinaire that we will only allow private investment in infrastructure mm. or so doctrinaire we'll only allow the state to invest in infrastructure. We want people to come together into a PPP arrangement which makes us all richer and better off mm. and means that we don't yeah, have to yeah, borrow let's, a lot let's, of money. Let's look at what the UK did with PPE and how expensive it was. Um, you know, they, they used it to, to, to keep the, the public sector borrowing requirement down. And it has ended up, you know, with the NHS and various other and schools and so on, owing in perpetuity to, you know, huge sums to private. So PPE is not, um, sorry, yeah, p uh, private, private public partnerships are not necessarily um, good, for, good, good for the public. They can no, be bloody good for the, for the private. Exactly. And even the Tories in Britain have decided that mm. they don't really work, work That's anymore. Right. And so That's they've right. pulled back from them. And the same in Australia. There, there was a, a big swathe of these PPPs that went through in New South Wales and Victoria over the last decade. And the same things happened. Often the company goes bust because it's so highly geared. And eventually the state has to come and rescue it. Um, uh, and that's actually what's happened with the biggest PPP project in New Zealand um, that was launched in the final days of the last national government mm -hmm. in uh, 2017. And is that Transmission Gully? Transmission Gully, uh -huh. um, which is still not open. Uh, it's a year and a half late. It's a billion and a half over budget. Effectively, the government had to bail out the private company that was building it. And um, so this is part of the problem here is that uh, Luxon may come in saying the same things as John Key about being ambitious mm. for New Zealand, about being pragmatic, about um, bringing the growth, private sector and growth, the public together. Like his comments about growth and productivity, sure. Oh, but how yeah. you get there is a very interesting problem. Exactly. And to simply come out with a line that all we need to do is grow the economy and the tide will lift all boats. He actually used that phrase, the tide will lift all boats. Well, that has been oh. proven over the last 20 years or so. Well, also, I believe, be I believe trickle-down might, might not have worked perfectly either. No, and this is the thing. He hasn't got a new idea. What he's mm. doing is repeating the same ideas that John Key had and thinking that they would work. Now, even if they would work in 2007-8, things have moved on since then. The, yeah. the economy is a different one. The context is a different one. The level of inequality is a different one. And the other problem for, for Luxon is that his background, his backstory is a different one from John Key. And yeah, absolutely. He doesn't have those same skills. And the really good um, example from my point of view of what, where he doesn't have that feel for the politics, not only exactly. the po politics of dealing with individuals and members of his party, but also the uh, symbolism of being yeah, the leader and the of mood, the, party. the symbolism yeah. and mood, you're right. But so we, can, we, could, the, we could look at somebody who does have that, Bernard. We could look overseas to somebody who has tapped into the mood, who has, over the last 17 years, been an absolutely towering strength of uh, quiet influence control. And that's Angela Merkel, who finishes oh, yeah. up this week as the German Chancellor. I mean, what an extraordinary 17 years, she said. I, I posited my, um, my thing for the spin-off, which I put around, that she was actually more important than Margaret Thatcher or Helmut Kohl. Uh, I'm not absolutely convinced about that argument because, of course, Helmut Kohl brought about um, German reunification, which is, you know, probably 
with alongside the fall of the fall of the Soviet Union, the single most important thing that's happened in our lifetimes, uh, or the single biggest change that's happened in our lifetimes politically, along with perhaps the the rise of China in the last uh, fifteen years. But Merkel has is is absolutely extraordinary, and um, I, I was really struck. There's a, a friend of actually a friend of both of ours, I think Matt Karnishnig from Politico. Um, bust. So there's, there's a view that. Uh, Merkel has stabilized the world, stabilized Europe, been Mrs. Sensible in her um, rather extraordinary colored uh, outfits and so on. And that she's also bought um, the wisdom and intelligence of having been a pretty amazing um, uh, uh, academic chemist um, into being the chancellor of the German, the chancellor of Germany. And also, of course, because she's from Eastern, was from um, the German Democratic Republic, the, uh, the, the well, that's, former, that's... former East Germany. That's an origin story. <laughs> yeah, I know. Ex ex that was exactly why I was a good, nice segue, Bernard. But uh, very interestingly, this friend of mine on, on Politico, which I'll put on the on the thing, says it's a myth that she is so sensible. Um, the one view in Germany is that she's actually uh, an unbelievable compromiser and an unbelievably effective um, stealer of other people's ideas. That, you know, as you would expect to some extent from a Christian democratic politician, she is inherently quite conservative and doesn't take uh, big leaps, and I was just talking to a, to a German friend of mine today, and he she said that um, uh, um, Merkel is known for what's called I'm going to speak German here, asymmetrisch demobilisierung, which means a politician who refuses to comment on controversial subjects and tries to incorporate the other party's position as much as possible. It's a very I love interesting that there's idea. a German word in, for that. Exactly, exactly. Well, there's a German word for everything. But it is it is really interesting. And I but I think the area that I found her most impressive on in that I can think of in this period was accepting a million refugees. Sonia on on the panel on the group is, is saying the same thing. She, you know, accepting a million people from Syria and saying we'll make it work. Mm. Yeah, no, this, that's, and that of course was a... we now know that those those million people, yeah, standing up against the AFD, standing up against the fascists, standing up against uh, assholes like Trump. I'm sorry, there's an official story. You know, people yes. like Trump who said she was mad, um, you know, to take to take them on. Those people have been absorbed remarkably quickly. They have uh, contributed to the growth of the of the German economy, and they've also co contributed to the um, to the. Uh, you know, revitalization of a, of a country with a deeply aging population. Very, very, very interesting that she took that and, and was and was courageous to do that. It is, I'm, I, I really don't know what to expect from Olaf uh, Scholz, her successor, but in the piece that I did for the bulletin on this this week, I did, I was able to, I mean, a couple of things as the editor of the, the spinoff did put the fantastic picture, which I recommend that everybody looks at of, if they don't remember it, of, um, it looks like the movie, uh, 12 angry, angry men if you remember that about the um the jurors um and it's essentially all the world leaders standing around trump who's sitting on his bum at a g at a g7 uh i think it was the one in canada actually and merkel is essentially looking him in the eye just saying what the hell are you you know here's what's happening here you know and and uh it is absolutely fabulous but um just for, for everyone's um, yeah. uh, uh, usefulness, I have put the link to Peter's Brilliant. weekly so world news in there, which has that picture right at the yeah, top. Absolutely. But Trump described her as stupid, a loser, and a bitch. And before he took, apparently, he, he absolutely hated calling her because he knew, quotes, fucking Kraus, close quotes. Uh, but the, oh. my, my, my favorite uh, um, uh, Merkel quote in a way, or quote about Merkel, is is from someone who possibly even more objectionable than than Trump, which was Silvio Berlusconi, oh, who yeah. once described her as an unfuckable lardass. Oh. Um, See, so, this is the thing: um, people like Trump and Berlusconi just expose themselves for the sort of exact for the misogy for the misogynistist assholes yeah. that they are. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, but it, it was quite funny the other day. So she she has a there's a tradition in Germany where you. The, the chancellor, outgoing chancellor, is allowed to have a military band, quite a spectacular military band, play three songs of her choice. And she chose a Christian hymn and a popular German ballad. But then she also chose one um, by the 1970s German punk le legend uh, Nina Hagen, yeah, which is yeah. du, du hast de Farbe und Vergessen. You forgot the color film. 
and it's all about it's a song all about uh, how we should remember how brilliant things were in um, in the in East Germany, which of course they generally weren't. Um, and there's a lovely lovely lyric in it, uh, which is quotes: "No one will believe how beautiful it was here." Close quotes. Which, if anybody um, wants to take take a look, a humorous look at that, um, "Goodbye Lenin" is an absolutely wonderful film about the um, changes in in the GDR, and uh, and the plot is essentially a woman goes into a coma before the fall of communism, comes out of it, and her children try to try to pretend to recreate the world of communism because they think it'll be too much of a shock for her to see how much has changed. So they they, they, they try desperately to to not let her see that um, that um, communism has ended. Yeah, and another recommendation of a German movie which talks about that era that I've always say to people to watch is The Lives of Others. Oh, God, yes. Yeah. Yes, which, which, is, um, which is about the Stasi. Yeah, which captures the, you know, mm. pretty dire situation there. And for her to come out of that and then to lead the essentially West German government um, yeah. for uh, uh, more than a decade is, is quite some achievement. Well, but, when, you got, when you're talking about the lives of others, Bernard, you know, that is all about memory. And one of the things that I, I also talked about and I thought we would talk about today is Putin's attempts to shut down a thing called um, Memorial which uh, has stumbled along. It was, it was set up by Andrei Sakharov, the Nobel Peace Prize winner, uh, Soviet, Soviet dissident winner, if you remember him, the Sakharov Prize and so on. You know, and it has been almost single-handedly retaining and building the uh, knowledge and archives and openness about the Gulag. Now, I had a dispute with um, a relative of mine recently who um, suffers rather badly from whataboutism. And when I, you know, when when said, you know, when St when Stalin was bad, but Churchill was worse, you know, all that sort of stuff, you know, under the Stalin period, 27 million people uh, died in Russia and Ukraine, you know, from the Gulag to the war and into the um, uh, into the deliberately created Homolodor, the Russian, the Ukrainian famine, um, and the uh, memorials organization has preserved an extraordinary amount of information. About some of the finest books, you know, all the books about Stalin that have been written, the various um, uh, Simon Seabag Montefiore books about Stalin. Uh, lots and lots of books have been written using memorials, both first-hand accounts. There's also the Nobel Literature Prize winner, um, uh, Svetlana Alexeyevich. Uh, many of her books, which are essentially interviews with people, are, have been assisted by the retention of individual memoirs from people who went to the Gulag and, ex and could explain mm. um what happened and I, I have a, a a rather terrific friend who's a, a quite a well-known author and expert on expert on Russia called um, David Satter and his view so what what Putin's trying to do is shut down memorial using some of the same instruments that he's used to close down independent journalism in Russia which is its connection to foreign organizations and they become what's called a foreign agent and they have to declare that they're a foreign agent and this is even if they get you know, a, a grant from the Carnegie Foundation or a grant from George Soros or somebody like that, although nobody's, you know, nobody's taking money from George and, um, in Russia at the moment. And David's, David's, uh, David Satter's position or view is that Russia will not mature or change as a democracy until it has resolved and understood and shared and recognised what went on in the, in the Stalin period under, and under Khrushchev and Brezhnev and so on. And his book that describes this is, has a most wonderful title, was it was a long time ago and it never happened anyway. Yeah, and yeah. it is about this, you know, because you know we talked uh, in that piece, Bernard, and you and I have talked about it before. The Fr Franco had the pact of forgetting in Spain, uh, and of course Spain is now dealing with the true consequences of the 19, 1937 civil war. The the, the other book that uh, David Satter wrote, which is pretty much about uh, Putin and Putin's involvement in blowing up. Um, or alleged involvement in blowing up apartment buildings in order to increase his uh, sense of fear in the country. And uh, I mean, it's possibly the most cynical thing you can possibly imagine. And then used as a just justification for the second Chechen war. Um, that his book on that is called the, the less, you know, the better you sleep, mm. you know, and yeah. it, so it is. And, and, you know, we're just seeing, you know, the cynicism playing out and where it's also playing out in reality at the moment is 
uh, on the border of Ukraine again. And I think we have discussed yeah. this well, before. This is, this is a worry. This week, the uh, level of tension rose. The genuine talk now about tens of thousands of Russian troops on the border with Ukraine. Formal warnings from the US Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, to the Russians saying, um, we will take action if you invade Ukraine. Sergei Lavrov on the other side, uh, accusing um, America of escalating tensions by installing medium range missiles and talking about some sort of, you know, horrible conflagration. It's not great. And you, you do wonder, um, it's, it's, it's really, really good that you pointed out that this weekend is when Angela Merkel, uh, you know, hands over power to someone yeah. else at a time mm. when her great um, uh, justing partner, I suppose you'd call it, um, Vladimir Putin. And that's why the, the Trump stuff is so interesting. There's a reason that Putin wanted Trump to hate yeah, Merkel. absolutely. Because uh, Merkel was his main, you know, um, buffer stopping Putin absolutely. from doing and, his thing. And, and of course, Merkel is also, you know, she, she, she has said the, um, the, the uh, Nord Stream uh, gas pipeline can't really be stopped now. And of course, let's remember that the Nord Stream gas pipeline, many of the executives in charge of it are former Stasi members, uh, you know, who share, who share that intelligence background with Putin. And also, let's also remember uh, that Gerhard Schroeder, the former German chancellor, is uh, hand in glove with Putin on many things. And it's and arguably is one of the contributors to Putin's power since he was um, uh, deeply involved in feeding money from or opening up St. Petersburg when, when Putin was deputy mayor mm. to Siemens. Uh, you know, there's a lot of, there's some very, very dodgy, dodgy goings on over there. Um, and it really matters for all of us. I know it seems like a long way away, but um, all of that shenanigans between Russia and Germany, particularly on gas, has pushed up mm -hmm. prices of gas is one of the reasons um, we've got, you know, inflation, frankly. Mm. And um, this is my slightly tortured segue in, <laughs> into the oh. big news out of the US Federal Reserve this week. Ah, yes. Which is... It was a quite tortured segue, but... It yeah, was, but yeah, yeah. We stuff got there matters. The yeah, yeah. <laughs> Go for it. Uh, was that um, the big news in the sort of global economic front this week, and uh, one that I wrote quite a detailed piece about uh, on the Kaka was uh, the US Federal Reserve's chair, Jerome Powell, coming out in a um, select committee hearing and saying that uh, inflation was much more embedded than he thought it would become, and that he was essentially retiring the word transitory, which means effectively that the US Federal Reserve has bailed out of the team transitory camp of central bankers. Ah, as you, as you, as you, as you said, they would. Yeah. Um, well, for the U.S. Federal Reserve, um, that's the really big deal. Now, it means that um, for the Reserve Bank of New Zealand, it's good they've got company because the Reserve Bank is not in team transitory. Uh, the Fed is now out of team transitory, and this is important because it means the Fed will dial back its money printing much faster than expected. Um, possibly uh, reducing it by as much as $30 billion a month. They're currently printing $120 billion a month, which means they'll probably finish money printing by March, April next year, and then clear the decks for rate hikes starting in June. And um, when the markets uh, heard this for the first time, suddenly it was this chill of uh, fear, fear that no longer the central bank will back everything they do and always pump up the value of their stocks. And so you saw a 2.5% fall in markets um, the next day. But of course, all of those markets are completely experienced now in buying the dip, knowing that, that um, central banks and the government will never allow the market to fail. And all they need to do is wait for the rebound because there'll always be a rebound. Mm. And we've seen that uh, this week, even though Omicron um, did worry a few people at the beginning of the week. I must say the tone of the commentary coming out of South Africa and other places now is that it's more infectious but um, milder than Delta. Mm. And I will uh, still be. I will still still have my mask on on the Waikiki ferry though. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and uh, um, I must say it's great news to see these numbers coming through today. Uh, less than a hundred um, cases. Yeah, but I would have. I would have. I would. I would have to assume that with Auckland opening up and with people in restaurants and so on, that we'll see a blip upwards in a few days. Yes. And um, <clears throat> particularly, um, that's why I suspect the opening up of the borders around Auckland is being put back to the 
to the 15th. Mm. And um, although it's interesting, I asked uh, Grant Robertson about this today at the 1pm presser. Could it be that Auckland gets put down from level level red? <laughs> I completely mixed that level red from the red traffic light to the orange traffic light, or is it amber? Um, and uh, before Christmas, because the position is improving with the vaccination rates elsewhere. Mm -hmm. um, and that will be interesting as, as well to see whether that, um, that happens. So um, big news on the inflation front. And then, of yeah, course, so where, where are we on inflation then? Well, uh, the Fed is saying that it's um, more embedded than they thought. They're going to have to withdraw monetary stimulus faster than they thought. And this means that next year, the world's investors are going to have to think a lot more about um, uh, whether asset values are justified with higher interest rates and with the end of money printing. Mm. Although the European Central Bank is still printing 80 billion euros a month and has repeated again this week, Christine Lagarde, that she still thinks it's transitory and that the um, ECB will keep printing. And that was actually one of the arguments that investors said this week when they when they keep buying US stocks. Well, mm. yeah, the Fed might have stopped, but the ECB is still printing. So that cash will end up here anyway. So, so um, it's an interesting, delicate moment where um, th there's going to be a test of whether investors can handle a, and a global economy without money printing for the first time in 13 years. Yeah, and uh, yeah. that I suspect that they can't and that central banks will be back on the horse very quickly. And I um, uh, just just to brag about my interest in, in bond yield curves, um, which I um, wrote a piece in today's email about how Yield curves have flattened in the last couple mm -hmm. of weeks, in part because um, global investors essentially think that central banks are overreacting to inflation, or at least the Fed is, and um, that they will have to put interest rates down again early next yeah, year. Yeah, because the stock market is not showing any sign particularly of being concerned about inflation. It's more concerned about Omicron, right? Yeah, um, I, I think that's the case, although stock prices are near record highs, so... Mm. Um, it might be something that you react to for a day, but it doesn't really show yeah. through. And, and Bernard, sorry, forgive me. I was just looking at the time and wondering whether should we do, do oh, questions yes, or to, should we do the skateboarding know. dog? Or in this uh, case, a skateboarding cat. <laughs> skateboarding cat. Well, let's ask everyone on the call, 78 attendees now, to pop your questions into the timeline. That's very kind of you. Yep. Or um, uh, to put it in there as a Q&A. Oh. A oh, yeah. Somebody also, just somebody also put up a, put up a Q&A time before saying, what, what do we think about the Solomon Islands? Now, I covered that in last week's uh, session yes. and in the uh, uh, by, by forcing you at gunpoint to deal with it. Um, it is very interesting because it, it would appear that the, the, recognition, the official recognition by Honiara of, Chi of Beijing rather than Taiwan is at the root of this. And... Therefore, some experts in South Pacific uh, news affairs believe that similar problems will crop, crop up in New Caledonia and other places, and that, in fact, there may be some hidden actors in this uh, related to China that may be stirring things up a little bit. Yeah, it always comes back to these big power plays. Um, in Europe, obviously, it's uh, Russia versus America in, in Europe. Um, yeah. In the Pacific and Asia, it's China versus uh, America, um, and uh, we just have to hope that we can avoid some sort of um, ugly mistake. So, shall we? Shall we do the skateboarding dog story while yes. people are submitting questions? So, the, the, the skateboarding dog story is the breastfeeding breastfeeding a cat on an airplane. What? Uh, a woman was uh, was <laughs> reported to have been uh, breastfeeding her uh, hairless cat on a Delta flight, um, and this came about because the 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 she was asked to stop. Um, and put the cat away uh, or put the breasts away and uh, which is i'm not being uh, uh, misogynist in this case this is i'm just being catist um and it was a pretty extraordinary idea because there is this idea of course in america of comfort animals uh, oh, yeah. and so um the pilot radio uh, broadcast a message ahead which was picked up on reddit and went immediately about a, a, a woman breastfeeding a cat and you know a certain seat position um it is pretty weird but of course delta then published their uh breastfeeding policy which says that they encourage uh women with you know children of course to to breastfeed them as they as they see fit i think everybody's slightly taken aback by the idea of breastfeeding a cat but the thing that also took um some people's some people aside was so i remember 
this whole comfort thing. There was a there was uh, somebody trying to take on a comfort peacock onto an airplane. Really? Uh, and and was declined. But someone succeeded in taking on a comfort um, horse. Now there apparently is some breed of kind of micro horse, and this person managed to um, persuade the airline that it was small enough and so on, and that she needed it. She, she would have been upset with the drama of taking a flight without her comfort uh, emotional support horse. But uh, according to Delta, said that it has experienced comfort turkeys, gliding gliding possums, snakes, spiders. And more, and I was well, just thinking, I, a comfort spider is pretty weird, if you ask me. <laughs> it must be in a jar, right? Well, I um, hope so. Well, yeah, actually, yeah. so the 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 I can, but just on the spider subject, uh, I was telling somebody today, the, a former minister of defense, former minister of defense in the UK, Gavin Williamson, uh, had it was famous for having a tarantula called Kronos, um, until he was uh, forced by a Labour tribunal to have it removed from his office because he had a, an arachnophobic. Um, <laughs> staff member who who refused to come into the defense secretary's office uh, if chronos was running about anyway there we go i never Bernard. thought we'd go i never thought we'd go to the breastfeeding cat and, and the, into a tarantula and absolutely you, yeah, yeah. and you get it all, all on the weekly home. come it's here fantastic. for all the fun yep yeah, yeah. absolutely so now just questions. jumping into the questions um some of them we've sort of answered in the discussion but there is a couple of questions specifically one from gary moore thank you gary great to see slash hear you um you've asked the question you know why don't you challenge the lack of uh investment and enterprise as per your column which obviously i did and push a capital gains tax as part of the solution mm-hmm. well i sort of i sort of was raising this as a point that we need to tax wealth um or those capital gains in some way my my view actually i mean i mean i i like the idea of a capital gains tax it's perfectly conventional and um it's something that we should be um including in some form but given the political problems it's it's now toxic, frankly, politically, that um, a simple way to achieve the same aim and do it in a way which is consistent with New Zealand's broad-based low-rate system Mm -hmm. of tax, one that's impossible to ignore, one that um, means you're not going to spend a lot of money on accountants and lawyers to get around it, and that you can't get around it, and that is a land tax. And so I'm I'm a fan of a 0.3% 0.3% tax on the uh, value of residential zoned land, um, so the unimproved value of the land, and with a 3% land tax for uh, uh, residential zoned land that doesn't have houses on it, so to encourage people to build houses mm-hmm. on it. Interesting. And also um, a 30% value capture uh, tax for land that has been rezoned by a council and that the uh, um, the 3% uh, land tax on land banked and the 30% uh, value capture tax should go to councils to um, help them pay for infrastructure and that the funds from the 0.3% land tax should go to a uh, infrastructure housing and climate commission uh, run by um, independent bureaucrats, but to a new law that specifies they need to target zero carbon by 2050, which we've already got, and affordable housing, which um, I think means um, house priced income multiple of five and a rent of uh, no more than 30% of disposable Jesus household Christ, income. You can't control rent, then. You can't have rent control. Oh, no, 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 I'm not, no, no. I'm not saying that you control rent. What you do is you build so many houses that the rent mm-hmm. falls and your job as the head of this commission is to ensure that the uh, cost of rent is essentially no more than 30% of disposable income for anyone. Because mm. at the moment, the poorest 20% of our population, more than half of them are spending more than half of their income on yeah, rent yeah. at the moment. Which Bern- makes Bernard, the- Dara's asking there about what, what, what about a property tax, transaction tax paid by the vendor at the point of sale, which sounds very much like the, the UK system of um, uh, stamp duty. Um, do we have that in New Zealand? I don't know. No, we don't. Um, I can't afford yeah, to buy a house at the moment. So, yeah. you know. <laughs> Sadly, it's going to get worse. Um, by the way, the Reserve Bank is forecasting another 10% rise in house prices. But uh, um, the question about stamp duties, I know they're used in Australia and they're very effective mm. for um, state uh, governments to raise funds to build the infrastructure. Uh, but in the end, um, they are a, um, a bodge to get around this problem of not taxing yeah. land. Yeah, now, absolutely. They've got the same political problems that we do where people who own land don't like it taxed. Surprise, surprise. And um, so they get around it with a stamp duty. But the problem with stamp duties is that effectively it is a 
tax on a transaction, which means that a whole bunch of people don't do the transaction because mm -hmm. of the tax. Now, sometimes you do need to move house. Sometimes you do need to sell your house and trade up or trade down. And um, it is a, a, a quite a, a dead a dead weight on, on transactions and on, on liquidity in your housing market. And what it means is that um, the, the studies of productivity and of the flexibility of your labor market shows that these stamp duties actually reduce the ability for people to easily move home to a better job or to where they need to go because a lot of people don't sell their house or don't buy a house because of the stamp duty. So I'd, I'd prefer the land tax myself, but um, I get why you'd, you'd want to have it as at least something. And yeah, I get yeah. Gary's point about, you know, capital gains tax. The trouble is we've just had three elections where the median voters said no, and we've got a prime minister who's barely 40 who says that she won't do it in her political lifetime. Mm. So, um, the, the only way around that is a land tax, in my view. Good. So that's what that. else do we want to? So people are criticising us for missing the missing the connection between Christopher Luxon in New Zealand and the hairless cat. <laughs> but you know, anyway, <laughs> the segue. It was yes. such a miss segue. Mm -hmm. no, 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 no. Sorry about that, everybody. What, what do you think we are, comedians? <laughs> so, um, well, which, which reminds me of the famous Bob Monkhouse joke. They laughed when I said I was going to be a comedian. They're not laughing now. <laughs> That's good. We really are two old coots um, mm. talking bollocks. This is mm. great. Mm. Um, now, the couple of other questions that were in there, um, uh, uh, and we talked about Angela Merkel. Uh, the question I'm uh, I was, that zipped past there is um, where are we? Um, the question is how. How worried are the microbiologists about Omicron? You know, I wouldn't yeah. call myself an expert there. but Well, I, I was listening to, I, I put up the link to an excellent BBC um, briefing about it last night. Um, very, very good, good half hour. They don't know yet how worried to be. You know, they're still looking, mm. the, 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 as you said, the, the evidence, there, and there was a very good South African um, uh, person, doctor, on uh, discussing it. And um, they just don't know yet how it does appear to be to, the infectivity is much higher. Uh, so the number of cases have gone up. It is unclear. It would appear whether it's uh, a breakout, whether it's going to cause breakouts, whether it's um, the, the effect are more significant. It's unclear. So yes. I think it's very much kind of watch, watch the space. Yeah. I mean, yes. I'm, so I'm somebody, the, the Blairs, the Blairs did get in trouble recently for having some offshore trust find sell their houses for them. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, um, I, well, not I trouble, think... unfortunately, but just, they got some bad press. Sorry. Go yes, ahead. Yes. Yes. Um, I agree. We should wait for what the scientists say, but the initial signs I, I choose to believe are quite positive mm. positive because I'm, I can't handle any more bad. I certainly, yeah, no, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Me too. Um, a question there is the risk back on of a US debt default on December the 15th. Oh my goodness. I know this is a Groundhog Day version 93, where the US Congress, um, the House and the Senate, continually refuse to give um, permanent funding to the US government and give them, you know, 10 days here, three weeks there to get their act together. Again, um, overnight, the uh, House of Representatives voted to keep the US government going for another couple of weeks. The Senate are now vote again. And, you know, we've got this crazy situation where all these mad Republicans do everything they can to try and destroy um, the evil government, which they are um, tasked with looking after. Um, so, uh, but usually these things are settled um, three minutes before midnight by everyone realizing they need to be grown ups. Um, Sadly, that will probably happen again, and we'll be back in the same situation in about three weeks. Um, yeah, so so what is happening, I'm just looking at a Reuters story from a day, day or so ago, that the Congressional Budget Office said that without an increase in the Treasury Department's borrowing authority, it would run out of cash before the end of December, because it has to transfer $118 billion to the Highway Trust Fund on December the 15th. So that is the next crutch point. But I do also notice that... Um, uh, the Senate Majority Leader, the Democrat Ch uh, Chuck Schumer, um, said he had had a, quote, good conversation, close quotes, with um, the Republican Minority Leader, Mitch McConnell, and expected to pass the increase soon. Yes. So Which is, and just Rick, remember how, how big this is. It's the, it's, it's a, <laughs> the debt limit is $28.9 trillion. Trillion dollars. 
I, yeah. I, I, between friends, mm, not much. Absolutely. Uh, well, well, between, but usually between uh, the United States and, and, and Beijing. Yes, that's right. Mm. Um, question from Kath. What do you make of a financial transactions tax? Yeah, no, this one's been around for a while. Uh, again, similar problems, political economy problems, where you're um, trying to essentially reduce the profits of banks, and that becomes difficult. Um, one of the other things, uh, it, as with any transaction tax, a bit like stamp duty, um, you do uh, uh, skew somewhat some of the incentives for actually doing mm. transactions. And of course, it's prone to um, avoidance. So people will find other ways to do transactions independent of banks. And that's one of the holy grails that the libertarian types mm. championing uh, crypto and blockchain uh, are saying is, oh, you can get around the tax system <laughs> by, by not doing your transactions through governments, through governments or banks or central banks. So that's one of the problems where, whereas a land tax, it's, you know, impossible to avoid. One of the great things about, you know, the modern industrial um, Anglo-American legal system that we have is that for, 500 years or so, everyone mm. who has one has a system like that uh, knows one thing, which is exactly who owns which piece of land. And it's impossible to ignore or avoid. So that's uh, one way to get around this problem of um, lots of rich people paying lots of uh, accountants and lawyers to avoid it. So um, uh, Beverly also points out, I need to write about this idea of the land tax, um, and I do. That's and have it and have it lifted, but lifted by the politicians. What a brilliant idea! Yeah, well, well my aim is to uh, continually move the Overton window. As yeah, 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 say. yeah. <laughs> and I'm I'm having a good crack at it. Um, and the other point made in the comment stream there is that people say, of course, that a capital gains tax really uh, only works on realization of. Um, uh, of your capital gains, i.e. when you actually sell mm. the house, whereas a land tax, which is paid every year, means that um, regardless of whether you buy the land or sell the land, the land will always generate a land tax. And again, you get around some of the boundary issues um, and the avoidance issues by um, getting away from this issue of proving that some, yeah. some capital has been gained and that there has been a an effective... Um, you know, uh, triggering of the moment of realisation. The other issue with capital gains tax and getting onto um, realisation problems is that at the moment there is a significant um, unfairness and um, inequity between uh, tax on pension funds and managed investment mm -hmm. funds, which do have to declare the gains on their portfolios when they pay tax every year. So even though they may not have sold the, sh the underlying shares or whatever it is they have in their portfolios, yeah. they still have to pay tax on the capital gains. On the performance the, improvement. In, yeah. yeah. Interesting. And, that, and that means that uh, people, again, see the obvious difference. I can invest my money in land and not have to pay tax on the capital gains. If I put my money into a managed fund, A, I can't leverage it, and B, they have to pay the tax on the capital gains. So this is the ultimate problem with um, New Zealand in particular, having the structure where we have, where we do not tax capital gains on land or land itself, or have an estate tax, which makes us unique in the world, and also explains oh, perfectly- Another, what, another you know, key, 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 Kiwi innovation. Yeah, we're the best in the world at having yeah, yeah, the most yeah. expensive uh, land prices. Um, and uh, li literally, I put some links in today's Asking Anything to some fantastic data sources on just how good we are at inflating our land values. We are the best in the world over the last 20 years at increasing our land prices more than anyone else to the highest levels relative to incomes and rents. It is it, it is in large part because we do not tax that yeah. properly. And unfortunately, Christopher Luxon uh, not only oh. didn't come up with an option, but shows that he understands. He understands. He understands. So, understands so well. Make He's that man prime minister. He understands. Yeah. He understands well, us all. And our the, motivations. Great, the great irony here, Peter, is that there will be a certain chunk of New Zealand who look at that and go, Oh, he's clever. He's worked it out too. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, exactly. I, I, I'm, I'm yeah, has he got, has he got a double cab use as well? Actually, that's well, a, no, but he has got a black Mercedes that he, or he was chauffeured across the chauffeured road, more across. or less, which was a bad scene. Yeah, no, so that bit I talked to you before about how um, his initial choices on the symbolism were bad, were, that was the very first thing he did in the eyes of the media, yeah. was to jump into a black Mercedes chauffeur 
and be driven 150 metres across the road from his apartment to Parliament with um, journalists running after after mm. the car. Mm. And then the second thing he did was ensure that the, um, the victory press conference and speech was done in the Beehive Banquet Hall, which is usually a place reserved for functions of state and for prime ministers to announce things. So that he thought the symbolism was of a, a presidential statesman. Interesting. But in fact, everyone in the press gallery thought this was a dick move because a um, the sound quality is awful, so mm, it really made the yeah. lives difficult mm. of all of the um, the journalists and the uh, people actually filming the thing, and b it just looked like you think you're prime minister already, mate. Yeah, no, you yeah, don't exactly. exactly. And so he did get an awfully big blowback from the uh, press gallery for what it's worth, and um, yeah, the combination of the discussion about his houses and the black murk yeah. and the um, presidential style press conference um hasn't been a great start for him no. and but, proves that it's the hardest job in um show business sorry yeah but so we've it. we've managed to go from the hairless politician to the hairless cat and back again <laughs> all right i have to go for a swim thank you fantastic peter thank you very much wonderful to see you and and all of our attendees. and thank you very much for the attendees yes and i'm as jealous as hell peter and yeah so looking forward to um going for a swim on why he together at some point. See you. <laughs> Kakitea no everyone.